Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Matthew Jones. Welcome to the show. Hi there, Stuart. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Now, we are going to talk about three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. But before we do that, we're going to talk about your feature film, The World We Knew. Now, before we go into the details about that, do you want to give a brief synopsis as to what that is about? Um, I can do that. So it is a, I like to think of it as a noir film, and it's basically a comparison that has been made to Reservoir Dogs. Uh, a heist has happened, and a gang of odd individuals have to stay in a safe house overnight. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like someone sold them out. And then without giving too much away, the house starts to have an impact on them and things get quite strange before it, before the morning comes around. Indeed um, it does. I think that's enough. I think that's enough. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to kind of, you know, people want to watch it and hopefully, and uh, I want them to sort of get it as they're seeing it rather than me ruining it, giving spoilers for my own film. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting about your film, I think this is a first for me, where you are a co-director with one person and a co-writer with another. Yeah. So, so let me let me start at the first part of the process, which is writing a screen, which is writing a screenplay for a film. Where does the kernel of an idea come from that became the film that we see today? I have quite a long gestation period, so I think I probably had an idea for something like this when I was about nineteen. And to put and to put that into perspective, I'm forty, nearly forty three now. You know, like with ideas, you you often have about twenty half formed things in your head for long periods of time you forget about them you work on something else and uh, the way this actually happened is so we're a production company i'll just uh, mention the other guys so there's andy orr who produced this kurt lake that i wrote it with and luke skinner who's my co-director but we're a film production company called power square pictures and we've all done different roles within that so we've done three projects together so far and the first one actually wrote and directed with Andy. The second one um, we wrote together, the second short, and I directed that with Luke. And then originally uh, me and Kirk wrote this and we were going to direct it together. But then we decided to put Kirk in the film as one of the characters and he thought that was a lot of responsibility. So it happened all very organically. You know, We're kind of more of a collective rather than um, having clearly defined roles. We just work wherever we can on whichever project. But over the years, I've known Kirk for a long time. I always respected him. I mean, he's a novelist. He's been a musician, journalist. And I'd always wanted to do a project with him. And one day I was like, I'd like to write something with you, Kirk. 
and he knew about all of my half-baked ideas. I said, you can pick and whatever it is, we'll, we'll have a go. And the working, oh, actually, I can't give away the working title because it's all that tells you what the film is. And he picked this one. And I was like, oh, come on, man, I've got better ideas than this. Let's do something else. And he's like, no, this could be great. So we developed it. We got a script done in a couple of weeks, um, which originally we'd written to sell to get money to develop another independent project. But a few readers read it and sort of said, if you sell this, you're not going to get a lot of money for it. And the things that make it interesting will be the first things to be stripped out. And people will try and make it a lot more generic. Whereas if you attempt to do this yourself, you can keep the bits that you actually love, the things that mean a lot to you. Uh, and that was quite interesting, really. We thought, well, let's, um, let's just try and do it. Is that a suggestion? Because I think, I think the, the, you, you straddle genres, don't you? You, you, you. It's it's a noir that that arguably becomes a hot becomes a, a straight out horror film. And also, I think tonally, we kind of we're, we're quite interested more in like art house. So we didn't want it to be straight genre or art house. We wanted to straddle them, and hopefully, you know, one of the concerns is that you could fall in the gap in the middle, so you don't appeal to the art house fans, or you don't appeal yeah, to the yeah, genre yeah. fans. So you're kind of aware of that. So we always had in the back of our minds when we were actually making it that if one side's not balancing, we'll head more towards the other side. It could have developed on the shoot into more yeah. strange genre. It could have, we could have gone towards pretentious if we'd wanted to. But in the end, we found this balance that we thought worked and we kind of went, went there with it. So when, so when you've decided to work together um, and writing is very much a solo pursuit, so then when you introduce somebody else into the process, it naturally is a collaboration, but that collaboration can be cut, sliced and diced in many different ways. So how did the collaboration work between, between you and Kirk? Well, I mean, I've kind of had a bad habit of sort of starting projects and then getting obsessed with something else and dropping something and just moving on to the next. That's not like writers to look at the shiny thing when they've given up. on. (laughs) Well, you know, the the nebulous idea is always more beautiful than the knots and bolts of something that's that's already getting away from you. So it's easy to be a magpie and to jump on, you know. The Shangri- no, the next one, this is the one. This is the opus. This is the work of genius. <laughs> I'm bored of this one. Um, but sort of to prove myself to him, I think uh, the, the, we spoke about it. I went home and I just wrote like eight pages of just a sequence that, uh, that occurred to me. And I sent it to him. So it was done in sort of six hours. And to tell you the truth, it went into the film nearly as written. Oh, wow. It was just, I was excited. And sometimes... It must have lived in your subconscious, it, eh? Yeah, and it was just, it's a strange bit where someone retells a myth. Um, it fits quite late in the film. It was enough to get Kirk on board. And um, I don't know how people normally collaborate. Obviously, there was a lot of conversations, but we just broke it into sections. Hmm. So he would have a pass at one section, I would do another section, and then we'd swap. So you've got this nice editing process going on. Right. And then we would sit down together and smooth it out Um you know, and I think we did like maybe like 13, 14 drafts uh, to get it super tight, to yeah. cut out things that were going to cost a lot of money. Um, and, you know, the characters changed quite a lot because it is just a character piece. It is just like six guys in a single location. So they need to be quite strong. Uh, and also we were kind of trying to be realistic. If you want a good cast in a, in a very low budget film like this, you've got to give everyone their moment in the sun and something to do. Mm. So that was a, a real you know, key bit of writing it. It's like, oh, everyone gets this strong 
moments. That way you might get actor A or actor B rather than having to Yeah, because you, you, your story kind of, it reveals itself to have a central character, but actually it feels like, it does feel like it is shared around. Everyone everyone yeah. gets their moment in the sun for sure. Yeah, and that was, I guess, because of the the cast. I think we were quite lucky. Uh, well, lucky, a lot of work. We spent a year getting these guys together, you know, because that's, when you're making something, I mean, it's a tiny budget. We've been trying to hide how cheap it was, but now it's out there. So it's like we feel um, it actually makes it a bit more impressive, like the limitations that we had. Yeah, yeah. But there are certain things that you can control that I think go amiss in um, a lot of independent film where not enough love's put on set or costume and dialogue and getting the right cast. And these are things that don't necessarily cost a lot of money, but they add up to making something much more complete we wanted to make you know a real film we wanted to make a proper film in reduced means and we didn't want to cut any corners so that you know that's where a lot of the time went into it sort of Mm. um making things you know kind of making cheap things look as as good as possible really um what what do you what do you remember i mean over that 13 14 drafts what do you remember being the main storytelling challenges you had to overcome um, you know what it is like often we'd do table reads uh, of through various iterations we'd get together and we'd have a few beers and you know we'd put on funny voices and basically I, I like to think it's quite a deadpan I think it's funny a lot of people miss this mm. it's all about your personal sense of humour yeah. quite a dry deadpan sense of humour uh, and if it made us laugh or if there's a sequence going on where we're getting bored around the table you just address it and you know, it wasn't the sort of film where you could have an action sequence to spice things up. So it's, well, we've got to make them talk about something more engaging here because if it's losing us, it's going to lose other people when yeah, they're watching. Yeah, yeah. And so it was very much like um, trusting our judgment. If a page has gone by and it hasn't made us laugh or think, oh, that's nice. It's like, well, we need to do something about that. And um, I work in quite a sort of collage way. I'm not a very controlled writer, so I'll write 12 pages and eventually like dig out three or four bits and makes it's sort of like boiling down rather than trying to get it perfect at the right time, um, the first time. Okay. Yeah, I like, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I like, to, I'm, I'm like, um, I like to introduce dogma. So I almost, I, I'll do, I'll decide I'm going to do three, four, eight pages a day until it's finished, but I'll always stick to that's the minimum. Yeah, okay. I sometimes do more because if I piss three pages in in an hour, I've got time to keep going. But often, if it took a bit longer, you go, go, okay, well that's fine. I've got me pages that I said I'd do, and it's like you've, you 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 so you keep a sense of achievement all the way through. Man, yeah, I mean sometimes you sit down and you just get a whole scene that just seems to come from nowhere because you know your subconscious already work is working on these things when you're not looking at it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Wow, that was easy. And other nights, it's like pulling teeth. I remember one night, uh, we'd both been working on a different se- sequence. And uh, said, I was like, oh, how did you do? He said, I got four pages. They're pretty good. How did you do it? I said, well, I got like one line of dialogue, but it's really great. <laughs> you know, and everything, else, <laughs> everything else that I did was like kind of crap. And uh, so, so it, you're never aiming for the same thing with each time you sit down or each revision, I don't think. Yeah. Um, well, look, you know, so- each, so moving, so moving into um, the production of it, um, you've now got a new collaborator because, as you say, Kirk's in the film, so he, he thought that would be too too much responsibility for the, to take on board for the film. So you're now collaborating with somebody new. Um, 
and again, I've interviewed lots of sort of co-directors before. So for you, how did you co-direct? What was the process? Did you agree a process before you started? Did you work um, out on the job? We worked it out on the job um, because you can't have two people doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but we have different um, personality types. Uh, Luke is great. He's quite cerebral and organised and kind of better at keeping an eye on the bigger picture whereas I can be quite enthusiastic and which could lead you to not making mistakes but perhaps running too far in one direction so we had this nice kind of symbiotic thing where together we kind of balanced each other out quite well yeah um and doing it in the way that we did the high speed nature of shooting you know a feature film trying to do it in 11 days which seems so 11, was, 11 days was, was what you had, but 11 days, you, yeah. you, before we started recording, you were saying that originally wasn't, you had more days, so what? Well, we had 11 days and we wanted to do everything, but we realised within the first week, when you're trying to do something that looks great, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's slow. I mean, I storyboarded everything. To give you an example, there's one sequence, it's just some men talking in a room. I think I'd storyboarded maybe like 16 setups, 16 different camera moves. Yeah. And on the day, it's like, well, we have to condense this to three because otherwise we're going to lose half a day. Mm. Um, and we lost days in the middle of the shoot. So we already kind of spoke to the cast and crew saying there's going to be pickups. And once we decided that, we could just do the get as much in the can as we could. And we were constantly, I mean, the script was tight, but we were still revising it, and boiling it down. Like anything that could go mm. went by the end. I mean, I like to think it had no fat on the bones to start with, but there's always things when push comes to shove. Yeah. We need that. I love this. I really want it, but we'll have to let it go because we're telling the story. It's not a, you can't be egotistical. You have to be yeah, quite pragmatic about, you know, getting the best that you can. Well, well um, just going back to the idea of setups, because I, I, one thing I'm always, I'm always reminded of, and certainly, certainly films that go, I'm going to use a, 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 a limited location or single location. So films like Jeremy Saunier's Green Green Room is a good, is a good comparison yeah. to what you were doing. And I remember he talked about one of the main siege scenes where you've got six people in a room and, and Patrick Stewart on the outside of the room. And the while obviously it's not somebody falling off a 2,000-foot tower, which obviously technically is difficult to, to shoot and everything, actually when you're on a budget and time is against you, the idea of getting all the capturing everything from everyone's point of view. So you, you've got the drama from five people's point of view, because you can't just ignore someone for a scene is actually a very technical job. I mean, there's been, there's essays written about the dinner party scene in um, Whiplash, you know, where the family yeah. sit around and how they achieved it. And and, in, and recently I spoke to the director, Phil Hawkins, and he was talking about the advantages of, a, of, a, of shooting a wanna as opposed to all those setups. So if you can choreograph, one camera going around. Yeah. It's a way of saving time, isn't it? On setups and stuff. I mean, I think it's a bit of a false economy because I've read so many directors say the hardest thing is just shooting two people having a conversation. Mm. Um, Particularly if you try and do it in a semi-stylish way. Well, I think that's the point, isn't it? I mean, otherwise it just looks like telly and then, and that's fine if it's, it's Corey, but, but if you go, if you're trying to make something that's going to get people's attention, because you've thought about how it should look. And obviously with the themes and the mood you're going for, it needs more than just one over the shoulder, one from the front. <laughs> that is something we tried to avoid. Cause I think that I'm not saying people are lazy, but particularly in like big films. So say if you watch a genre film, like a thriller or an action film, 
every conversation they do like a medium wide kind of close and then they go close and they just cut between them and build it up and it's like you lose all the magic of um you know a close-ups like used to be something really important when you go back to the 50s and 60s mm. it's like because something emotional is happening we need to see the face at this point yeah but i think we've become a bit like immune to that now because everyone just does the close-up this traditional way of shooting conversations and that was just something we were quite aware of um can you I think guess. of an example then where you sort of broke from that tradition and did something that you thought would be more interesting? Um, I mean, there was one shot that unfortunately we didn't make it in. It, it was sort of a homage to one of the directors that I'm going to talk about in a bit. Um, and we just came up, I, I, I sort of stole his style. And instead of having three singles or shooting people, we just got three people on a sofa, got a really nice framing and just let it play out in one shot. And I absolutely loved it. Like um, the timing of it and leaving these little pauses just with looking at three people, it was really nicely composed. And it's like, well, we did that because of time restraints, but it's way better than what I would have done if I'd had an extra eight hours. You know, so sometimes the path of least resistance, I don't know. It, but that'd be your speaking. Yeah. That's speaking the language of cinema then, isn't it? Because in a way that kind of lock shot of three people talking suddenly becomes what else am I meant to look at? And you you as an audience member can still be taking in all the scene, but if you were sat there watching and you are the camera literally, you're yeah. having to decide what to look at. And you're thinking, am I meant to look at every just the faces? Am I meant to, is there something going to appear? And so you you end up being involved in the in the shot almost. And then the more yeah. you can, the more sometimes the longer you can make that, the more the more uncomfortable or the more engaging and more compelling it can become. And I guess it's that's a very I mean, that's very formalist, isn't it, in terms of cinematic approach, the the idea of that, 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 that sort of single shot for, for, a, for a moment. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like we're all kind of, without thinking about it, we're just like a composite of our influences, mm. you know, and um, we sort of consciously and unconsciously sort of stealing. We, we just like, we, we edit everything together, so the things we love, there's no way that you're going to not try and replicate bits of those things. I mean, there's this amazing... Uh, quote by Jim Jarmusch where he's talking about authenticity and he's like you know artists steal you don't pretend that you're reinventing the wheel mm. like you take from everywhere like uh, films books you know and you just got to be honest about it it's like I love these things mm. of course that's all going to feed into what I'm doing I'm not you know some egotistical maniac who thinks I'm reinventing cinema there's all these things I love and when you're actually on the spot on the day and you're doing it it's like that's that that's your life blood these things that you genuinely love so oh yeah i mean my, one of my favorites of that is is a music reference is um gas wheel and the drummer from happy mondays said that when we went in to do 20 20 uh, squirrel and g-man the first album uh we went in there to make a slander family stole album and what came out is happy mondays yeah there's that famous um thing like what is it it's like a, a nirvana song um I've not thought about them for a while. Uh, and Kurt Cobain, when he wrote the riff, probably for the uh, Tip Smells Like Tip, he was trying to play something else. He was just trying to work out someone else's riff on his guitar and he got it a bit wrong. And then there you go, you know. And I think that happens across all creative industries yeah. and endeavours, you know. Um, well, look, that's a lovely segue because obviously one of, the, one of the parts of the film production process is the edit. And often this is where a film finally gets written because you know they as they say there's the there's the writing of it there's the producing of it and there's the editing of it and they are three distinct processes so yeah 
can you talk to what what for you were the main discoveries about what you had and what came out you know what came to be the film we see today I mean, it is like in a lot of ways fundamentally different. I think if I reread the script, it'd be, you'd see what it was going to be, but we found something totally different while we were putting it together. Okay. Uh, to start with the editing process, so our amazing editor, old friend of mine, Will Martin, who was just phenomenal. Um, at first, he was quite resistant to doing it because we're quite close friends. And eventually, me and his, his partner broke him down and he agreed to do it. Uh, the first part of editing, man. And so he put a rough assembly together and obviously he doesn't choose, he doesn't look through takes. So you don't get the best take. So it's jarring. You know, any, if anyone who hasn't made a film will never know how disturbing it is when you see your first rough cut. Well, there's a reason they call it the suicide court, isn't it? Well, that's what Martin Scorsese said, which made me feel better because me and Luke, when we saw this thing, I was like, we were walking home in silence from our editor's <laughs> house like, chronically depressed i was like can we just like buy a bottle of gin we've not done well we've gone wrong and then i read this thing by martin scorsese saying that if you don't want to commit suicide after seeing your first assembly you don't care enough (laughs) i didn't know that part of the show okay okay it's probably being kind of funny but um it really gave me a lot of uh it, it lifted my spirits and then you start whittling away with it. And we had a weird kind of thing with the first edit that we, I guess, technically we only had about 75% of the film. So there's always, it's going to be patchy. So you're only building rhythms for sequences because we knew there were other blocks that we had to pick up just yeah. to tell the bare bones of the story. Um, and then you work on it and you work on it and you work on it. And, you know, we were fortunate with, I mean, some of our phenomenal cast, I mean, all of them were great, but like Johan Myers, Struan Roger, uh, Finbar Lynch, they they were so seasoned and they'd done this so many times. You know, they'd been on way more film sets than me. So when you get performances from them, they'd like one take to just do something slightly different and you just trust them. Yeah. And when you start picking out those great takes and like mixing them together, it kind of feels like making music, I guess, and they're sort of playing off. So you might put an extra tiny bit of a a pause in that just creates an extra ambience and slowly it just gets a bit better and better. And, you know, we actually had to change the time sequence of the film because we had some issues with, we were shooting night for day inside and the weather was quite changeable. So a lot of things go out the window and it's not smooth. So we have to kind of move events around and they're the most satisfying bits of the edit. I remember we having a huge problem with kind of a transitional sequence of going from day to night. And I was just outside. Uh, we were editing. We went to stay away to have a full week edit at one point. And I was just like chain smoking outside. And suddenly I had this idea that if we put that there, this here and that there, I think that's going to work. And it's so thrilling when you think you're stuck. And then out of necessity, you just have one idea that kind of solves this fundamental problem. Mm. And then it also brings the film back to life because you've sort of changed it. So it's almost like you're collaborating with a different thing, if that makes sense. It's like it, yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. not yours anymore. So you're responding to something that you weren't expecting. And it's like, that's when it, you, you do have these moments amidst all the kind of the tedium and mild depression of trying to get it better. There are these like beautiful moments when a problem gets solved or something goes a bit awry and, a good example is once we just put the wrong music cue over a scene um, 
uh, Will just loaded up the wrong track by our amazing uh, the Liminales, our amazing soundtrack. Yeah, and it was it was out of place and it was a bit funny and it made us laugh. And I was like, let's leave it there, you know. Oh, okay, and it was meant okay. to be this really kind of somber piece because it's quite a, you know it's a dark moment in the film. And some people think that it's like too willfully obscure or ironic, but I just love it. And it was a total mistake. And that was another example of when, you know, a mistake becomes better than your choice, um, which I kind of like that part of it when it's fresh, when it takes you by surprise, you know. That's, <laughs> happy accidents. That's the magic. Happy accidents yeah. are, are only there because the other ingredients are, are present. You, you, you can't, the happy accident doesn't happen out of nothing. And that's something that you get on set as well. Like when, um, you know, uh, an actor might want to try something, um, you know, you're talking about the dialogue. Often people have quite big chunks of dialogue and it's like, I think if we take this away and I jump to this and after having written something and lived with it for so many years, you're so precious about stuff. But then part of you has to realize this guy's right because whereas you're trying to concentrate on everything, you've got the benefit of working with people that are only, they're just concentrating on their one thing. They're just obsessed with this one aspect. So whether it's your sound designer, whether it's an actor, whether it's your DP, they're just focusing on their one job. They're thinking about that more. You're just kind of overseeing everything. And there's a thing that David Mamet said. It's like you have to like overthink everything to like, you know, the nth degree. So because you've thought about it from all angles and you've obsessively broke down what could happen, if you hear a good idea that hadn't occurred to you before, you've got the sense of judgment to realize that's better than what you're planning to do. So you've built a bed for um, things outside of what you would have done to come in. And you've just got to have the sort of awareness under pressure to realize, man, that, that, that shit's better than what I was going to do. So we'll do that. It's the bit that um, always, it's always the bit that makes, that, that, that I love about filmmaking is this idea that, and I don't think people, I mean, I'm not someone that's directed, but, you know, and speak to enough directors now, is that the pressure to be attentive to the most microscopic detail while being able to jump to a helicopter view and see an opportunity when it arises is... Yeah. is Because I can imagine there's a... There's a, there's a if, if there's any kind of insecurity, like stick to the script because then we're, we, we, we've, we know this is okay, but actually, can we invite something else in? Or are we creating chaos, you know? And That's it. And I think the tendency towards chaos could, you know, it's quite <laughs> tempting. Another friend of mine, because I just spoke to as many people as I could before we did it and read all those books like Scorsese on Scorsese, watched all the interviews with directors. But a friend of mine just said, like, you know, on set as a director, it's like you're riding a horse and you're holding the reins in both hands. And in one hand, you've got to hold it tight. And on the other hand, you've just got to be willing to let it slip through your fingers. So you've got this balance of, you know, because when you're stressed, you want to keep things controlled. So you want it to happen exactly like the blueprint that you've had locked in for five years. But at the same time, the joy of just sort of like letting it go a bit loose for a bit, it it is that real odd balancing act. And I don't think there's many jobs that really are like that. I like like Brian De Palma says uh, in, in Devil's Candy, he describes it as being, he said, when you start the film, you enter the tunnel and the only way out the tunnel is the other end. You cannot come back. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, a lot of all directors have got their own version of this. Like Kubrick said, you know, cause he planned everything perfectly. And he said, when you actually get on set, it's like trying to paint a masterpiece on a leaky boat in, in a hurricane. <laughs> you know, because I've heard that one. That's amazing. It's like as much planning as you've done, things go wrong, man. Like someone's, 
poorly, like someone's, you know, yeah, yeah, happened. yeah. Like we're in this old house. Um, we shot it in like an eight hundred year old house in Essex, and it's kind of like, it, you know, it's kind of oppressive. The ceilings were too low. We had a DP who was six foot three. You know, he's a big strapping lad. The Americans, the amazing Lawrence Scott, who I have to um, thank for his amazing work. Um, so, you know, you can just get in a bad back because it's a lot of handheld and there's all these things. So you have to take a break or we have to find a wheelchair to put him in. So you can just, you know, do some tracking shots and sit down for a bit. Um, and that fundamentally changes what you were going to do. So it can be anything, whether we were under a flight path, you know, that we didn't know about. It's like when you go and look at a house or a flat, you don't realise about the leak or the neighbours that like playing reggae till two in the morning. And then something's <laughs> always there to surprise you. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. The most amazing things that happened is between uh, the first shoot and the pickups, it's a very old house. Part of it was um, filmed in a garage and part of it was filmed by, there's a small pond on the property. Um, and so we had to do some shots by the pond uh, and we had to do some shots of a character exit in the garage. And we went back, so we shot in like June and we went to do the pickups in November and the pond was empty. The water no. had just gone and the garage had fallen down. <laughs> Jesus! Like, it literally crumbled, which was great. That isn't that? Happen. Isn't that the? You've basically almost replicated the, the the David Mamet state in Maine, where they go for the uh, the the, the water wheel house that's been bur- got burnt down two hundred years ago. And then you know, then you have to be creative because you're like filming an empty pond, and you have to sort of create a fake garage just to get out of there. It's it's very odd, but there's all those things that you can't really factor in. Um, one one last question um, about the film, and it's it's just the title being the name of a Frank Sinatra album. So where? Well, um, is that so is I'm that always, is that, who was that where you directly took it from, or was it? No, I'm really obsessed with um, a musician called Tav Falco, who's okay. from the 80s, and he was kind of a rockabilly guy, sort of punk on the periphery of the kind of cramps kind of thing. Okay, and I've just I've loved it, his music since forever, um, and. I didn't originally realise that it was a Frank Sinatra song. And then Burt Camphor, uh, so there's a lot of people involved. Um, and it just seemed like we had working titles. And then just one day I thought, man, that's a really great title. I mean, but you, you kind of think maybe you've just gone a bit mad at this point. But then I mentioned it to the guys and they're like, brilliant, let's call it that. Um, and then obviously we had to the problem to trying to get the music licensing because there's three estates involved because we do a cover version of it in the film. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, that was it. I just really liked it. I thought it was kind of, um, it was in the sweet spot. And as soon as it had occurred to us, the film just felt like mm. it should be called The World We Knew. Yeah. Um, yeah, the working title was really dumb. Again, I'm not going to say it because it sort of reveals everything about the film, but it was one of those stupid titles that we all we, we got stuck with it for so long even though it's just daft uh it was hard to come up with something that wasn't that so yeah, yeah. something totally different and, uh, well look let's that's i think we've we've covered quite a lot of ground there in terms of the film it's available on hd digital so itunes amazon google play 
whatever the video the pay on demand video stuff exactly just finally i, I just want to say uh we're all amazingly proud of it like everyone that i've spoke to after in the current climate making an independent film using the means that we had we put everything into it i mean it uh, money blood sweat tears it, it's um you know your first feature you're always going to see some mistakes but overall i'm very no, it's a it's a blinding piece. Of it. It's a blinding piece of work, and 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 I think yeah, I think if it finds the right kind of audience, I think a lot of people will enjoy it. Some people might watch it by mistake, thinking it's going to be one thing or the other, and be mildly confused. But it's um, yeah, we did it, and it's the first one. And um, no, congratulations! You deserve I, all the congratulations that you can so get. I hope people enjoy it, and if anyone enjoys it, get in touch with us and tell us because it's always nice to uh, hear from people. You know, that's no. something I do. That's how we got the Liminanas doing the soundtrack years ago. Uh, Kurt Lake, who taught me this great advice, like, if you like something, get in touch with the artist and tell them. So he heard their first EP, yeah. said, this is brilliant. They invited him over to France to see a gig, and years later he approached him and a soundtrack happened. So, you know, reaching out to people that you feel a connection with, never a bad thing, because you might, if you're really, really lucky, get to work with them further down the line. One of the main takeaways from me this was the first time I really noticed Johan Myers as a as a as a as an acting force, and he's just a, his performance. His performance in your film is is outstanding, and he is just the most like phenomenal human being. Um, when we met him, we met him through some friends who just done a TV show with him, and they said you got to meet this guy. So we sent him the script, and we met him. We met two actors on the same day, and we don't have an office as of yet. So we met him in the Curzon because it's kind of a nice environment. And I was a bit nervous first time I sort of met an actor like in this sort of situation. Obviously, I have before, but it was the first person we approached to be in this, so it's quite a big deal. Yeah. And he bowled in with this boundless energy, and he's just like, um, man, he's, he's just got this great presence. And he just like bowled up to me and he said, "Tell me you're offering me this part." And I said, "We're offering you the part." And he's just like, "Come here, buddy." And we had a big hug. And oh man. Sort of, we chatted for a bit, and honestly, I was like, "God, is that how easy this casting is?" And I. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's not. It was, um, and every day on set with him, it was a joy, like infectious, his energy. And, um, you know, we are trying to work out something else, uh, projects to put him front and central because he is just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherworldly. He's, he's just, yeah. I'm no, amazing. no, because I, t- I, saw, I saw him in Undergod subsequently as well, which mm. is, he's great in that as well. Yeah. I mean, everything is in. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got that special thing. I, yeah, I just I fucking love him. He's, he's amazing. <laughs> Right, we're going to move into three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. And for the benefit of those that don't know this format, I'm going to explain it to you, Matthew, as the guest, but also for the benefit of those tuning in. You've given me three films. These are films that are important to you, or for whatever reason, and we'll find that out during this conversation. It's about what's what's made you sort of fall... I mean, for me, it's about what made you fall in love with the form, what maybe made you change your worldview, what made you, you know... Maybe what made you the individual you are today. And I think film, all all kind of art can come into our lives and it becomes its own little personal biography of who we are when we look back. And hopefully that's that's an opportunity for you with this conversation with the three films you've chosen. So, and what we do to make the show a bit more fun is that a little bit of jeopardy. So we're only going to talk about each film for five minutes. So when we hear this sound... You can hear that okay at your end, Matthew? I've got it, yep. When we hear that sound, that's the time to end and move on to the next choice. I mean, obviously, finish our thoughts and stuff, and every now and again, we'll leak into some time before we start the next one. But generally, 
it's so we can have give each each film equal amount of time than 40 minutes on one and then a minute to tell me the other two choices. That seem fair? That sounds brilliant. Yeah, that's good. So without further ado, the clock is ticking on 2004's Dead Man's Shoes, written and directed by Shane Meadows. Okay. I mean, uh, firstly, I've sort of cheated with this one because I should have picked his first film, twenty four. well, his second film, 24-7. Um, but Dead Man's Shoes, um, I prefer. But why this is so important is, so I'm from just a regular uh, working-class Midlands background, so you're pretty far away from Hollywood, you know? It's not like you guys like Tarantino and P.T. Anderson who grow up, and cinema is just like an industry that happens around you. Yeah. And, 24-7 came out when I was 17. Uh, and I was just going through that phase. Obviously, I think music was still my first love at this point, but just getting more obsessive with cinema, going from like casual fan to being quite obsessed. And um, Shane Meadows was from Nottingham and he seemed like he quite a similar bloke. And suddenly there was like proper films coming from where you're from. Mm. And it's... You know, easy to like understate how amazing that is. You know, representation so important. Like people need to see themselves, and um, it made it seem like. I mean, I thought it was so great. It's not like I thought I could do that, but it just makes something possible. So mm. I think it plants the seeds that I can be from here and make proper great cinema. Um, and then fast forward. So I think when uh, Dead Man's Shoes came out, I'd sort of. Uh, recently moved to London. I was living with a friend and we got hold of it and I watched Dead Man's Shoes and it's one of the few films in my life where as soon as it finished, I put it on again um, because it was a real genre film taking place in with accents and people that I could kind of... I didn't know them. I didn't move in those circles necessarily, but mm. they were in the towns that I grew up in and it was just mind-blowing. You know, I subsequently read that because he'd made a film before that didn't do as well, so he sort of stripped everything back. And him and Paddy Considine, the amazing Paddy Considine, basically decided to do a Midlands death wish. I mean, what a great idea. Mm. And um, it's like, it's rough around the edges, and, you know, it, you, you can see the budgetary limitations, but it's just amazing. And it just, you know, I, would I rewatch it frequently now? When's the last time I saw it? I don't know, but... It, struck such a chord that you could work on a sort of narratively genre, big canvas anywhere in the world. Mm. It's like you can be from the Midlands and try and do a Scorsese, you know. No, I mean, I'm, I'm from it, a small, t- small post-industrial town, 10 miles north of Manchester. And when I watched, when I watched Dead Man's Shoes, I'm like, I know this world. I know, I know mm. the big fish in the small pond, you know, that, that, that kind of dominates proceedings and everybody else sort of, is yeah. on tippy toes and then the idea that somebody might resist it is is a really sort of um inspiring thing for a film and to see it in a kind of rainy gray <laughs> english setting but then also that becomes cinematic is really powerful yeah. and and just the humor like it uses place so it sort of subverts things just by um because the portrayal of those people and how these people are, they think they're these huge like gangster characters, but mm. they're quite kind of tragic. And like you say, I grew up in a town with those people where you cross the street and you know they're, they're the guys you don't want to go near in the pub because mm. they're just bad news. Um, 
yeah, and some of it is just so electric. I mean, I say I haven't watched it for a long time, but there's various like scenes cut out for YouTube, and there's just, I mean, Paddy Considine is just at his peak. It's just like so magnetic. Mm. And the the young guy, um, Kebble, who plays his Tony Kebble, it's, I mean, his, it's his first, yeah, it's his first yeah. feature film. I mean, that, that's unreal, right? And then the boxer, is it Gary? Gary Stretch, Stretch like, yeah. And and just all the supporting characters, and it's funny and um, it's really moving. And but the, the reason why it had this big impact, like on my adult life, was because it was close to home, you know. And I think there's a lot of that now with people from different kind of ethnic, uh, you know, sexual orientations. Like there is a real push for everyone to get to see themselves. And I'm just like a straight white guy. But even for me, just seeing working class guys in the Midlands, front and centre, it, it, it's it's potent and yeah, you know, it really sticks with you. For me, it's the idea that it. You know, I, I've seen the equivalent in small town America hundreds of yeah. times, and because yeah. it's because it's kind of foreign, it, it feels exotic, and you never think of where you are as having that power. And then to see, like, you know, a, a, a pool, a pool hall, you know, a pub with a pool table mm-hmm. in, and a guy staring at another guy across the room, and that causing a scene. You know, I've been oh. I've been there a hundred times myself. Yeah, me too. You know? Unfortunately, you know, but uh, yeah. So that's it. It's it's an important film. I love it. And Shane Meadows, you know, brilliant, um, excellent. And Paddy in particular, just love, fucking love that guy. Yeah. No, I think um, it was. It, I know it wasn't his first, but it felt like it was the arrival of Paddy Constantine with that role. Because yeah, I mean, because he's great in Room for Romeo Brass yeah. as well. Um, playing that bizarre character and that's very potent too. Like, it's like where he came fully formed, you know, mm. um, you I mean, just do the I mean, for me, for me, I don't know about you, but the most powerful sequence in Dead Man's Shoes and what makes it, what makes it a, a really good tale about small town England. And, and I think for anybody watching it from outside England, it gives you a good insight is that when he goes after the family that have moved on, you know, so who were there at the scene of the crime, but has now, you know, that's part of his history. Yeah. Paddy Constantine terrorises him. That's where you kind of know that there's nowhere to go in small town Britain. You know, you, you're, nah. you are, you know, unless, unless people forget, it ain't ever getting forgotten. Mm. And obviously Paddy Constantine plays the conscience of the, of the, of the town, I suppose, for a better expression, which it makes, in a way, it also makes it, it's a very, I mean, I've, I, I put it in my five favourite British horror films when I did a list yeah. for a, for a thing one time but but also you could argue it's a modern western yeah you know you think of the shootout on the farm and stuff that's pure western yeah and it goes without saying the scene when he has his confrontation with gary stretch (laughs) by the fence oh i could watch that a million times in a row and never get bored i mean if anyone hasn't seen it it's worth watching it but like that three minutes alone um, indeed well look a very different film is your second choice and not one i'm familiar with so i'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say uh, I know the film, but I don't. I've never seen it, so I'm, I'm interested. Uh, I'm talking about Leningrad Cowboys Go to America. So again, this is kind of like I'm not cheating, but it's just the first film I saw by someone who then became. If I was had to pick it with a gun to my head, my favourite filmmaker of all time, Aki Karismaki from hmm. Finland. Um, and this one, thinking about this, actually made me quite nostalgic because being the age I am, I sort of uh, predate the internet. Yeah. And so this was a you case both. of, I just moved to London and we went to Blockbuster Video, me and a friend on a listless afternoon. 
And we just picked three things, you know, from the shelves that had cool covers. And yeah, I saw the name and I thought Charismaki. I thought, oh, it must be Japanese. You know, I knew nothing about it. You couldn't research this stuff. Hmm. Um, and basically this one's about a hapless Finnish band um, who make very strange music with ridiculous haircuts and they go on a tour of America. And there's a lot of comparisons between him and Jim Jarmusch. It was that very, I think, 80s kind of deadpan um some people would throw style over substance at it but yeah. when i saw it i'd never seen anything else like it and i think as you get older and you've got um so many reference points for things yeah it's harder to be blown away by things than when you're at the right age so absolutely teens into your early 20s like a song could just like rock your world or like a book or a film and unfortunately as you get older that you know, you appreciate things too much. You've got more of an you know, interior cosmology of how things fit together. Mm. But when you see those things at that age, it's like, wow, where does this come from? Like, what am I looking at? Um, and this is not my favourite of his films, but I have to pick it because it's the one that I discovered. And then uh, over the next several years, I obsessively watched everything he'd done. And I just couldn't believe... Um, uh, that he existed. It was like, um, it just spoke to me. You know, what, what, in what in particular was it about, about the film that sort of felt so new to you as a, as someone, you know, you've seen um, lots of films before. So for a film to sort of pull the rug from under you like that, what was it? What it, It's got this sort of like bleakness and joy. And it's like, I'm, I was a huge fan of, I still am, of like Vic and Bob. And it had this sort of surrealist deadpan. Oh, wow. Idea. I mean, it's so funny. They're all so funny. And it's so unique. Like I really respect filmmakers that build their own world where everything is singular to them. So I think, you know, big filmmakers do it, like Tarantino and the Coen brothers, P.T. Anderson, uh, the guy that I'm going to choose next does it. And I like being in a world that's totally unique. And my most favourite, my favourite unique world is Aki Karismaki's world because... Um, they cross all boundaries. There's no um, differentiation. Like, he has moments of, like, really, like, deadpan tragedy next to some kind of, like, almost slapstick moment. And the fact that just everything's there. Like real life, it's tragic and it's funny. Mm. You know, I, I struggle with real straight-down-the-line social realism where they just maintain one tone. It's like, oh, because it's serious, we can't have a joke, you know. Mm. Or because it's funny, we can't go too serious. And I love the kind of... Um, the mischief of Aki Karismaki that is kind of like, actually it's the one person I've ever wrote and written a, an article about for a friend's website, um, which was a great excuse to revisit his films a few years ago. Um, and it's like, they're kind of like manic depressive films because it's just all over the place. And you move between these emotional shifts and they just look amazing as well. Yeah. The, the music's, that's the other thing. They're like really cool. I think it's my idea of cool. And it made me realize like, there's nothing wrong with something being called for the sake of it and being stylish. One of my, I can't remember who said it now, but you know, I remember, I remember picking, I've always, I often repeat it, I remember getting it wrong, but it was something like, you call it pretentious like it's a bad thing. Yeah. You know, and I think, uh, I think sometimes that's, that's people's defense of going, I don't understand this, so therefore I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to say something that I think is pejorative. But actually, being dumbfounded by something and not being able to penetrate is actually quite a powerful thing and one that, that's the, they're the films that you're still that you're still talking about years later. They're not. <laughs> yeah, and I like he's he's always very. And also the great thing about Aki Karismaki is he's a very compelling. 
character in real life, his interviews, it's like he's an extension of his films. Okay, okay. I, I've always quite respected people where their life kind of blends with their arts quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get it a lot in like plastic arts, you get it a lot with musicians, but I think often filmmakers, I don't know, there's not that many where they just feel like their own films. Like mm. he has this deadpan finish, I like a drink, sense of humour. Mm. Um, and yeah, I just learned a lot from him. Oh, um, Go on, finish yeah, your just, thought. Just the, yeah, the tone. Anyone who's not seen his work, like you won't regret it. I mean, he went on to win like... Um, at Cannes for, uh, I think it was Le Havre that he won for. So he's, he's kind of huge now and he's getting, not softer, but he's getting, um, he's older now, but all of his early films, they're just like anarchic and brilliant. And they just speak to me on a very deep level, which is, is just always a nice thing. You know, there we go. Right then, your final choice is actually a choice. That, I mean, it's a film that's, that I'm, I'm circling around in my pathetic attempts to sit down and watch a film at times. Um, this one keeps coming up and for me to watch and I keep going, I'm not, maybe I'm not in the mood for it. Maybe I'm not in the mood for it. Um, it is Killing of a Chinese Bookie written and directed by John Cassavetes. Do you want to talk to us about where this fits in with your... Um, yes, I mean, there's nothing that I've picked that I sort of saw for the first time, I guess, after my early 20s, which is, I don't know if that's sad. I've seen things that I love since then, yeah. but... That was my formative years. No, no, I mean, this is the whole point of the show. I want I want to know yeah. the bits that kind of defined you, not the bits that you kind of looked yeah. at retrospectively. So, again, like with Aki Karismak, I mean, this is my favourite of Cassavetes films. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't the first I saw. Um, it's, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, so it's about a guy called Cosmo, played by absolutely phenomenal Ben Gazzara. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And he runs quite a seedy, um, like, strip club, and he's in debt to some gangsters for gambling bills so it sounds very generic and it's about him trying to balance running this um, quite sleazy strip show which he treats as if it's fine high art with uh, being on the periphery of these kind of Scorsese-esque kind of terrifying gangsters and him having to do I mean the title kind of gives it away he's basically called mm. upon to kill a Chinese bookie to clear his debts um, which just makes it sound like a genre film but this is where Cassavet is just, um, he, he, he's just totally himself. So he, he takes that, which on paper, give that to another director, you'd, you'd have like a two and a half star Netflix film. In the hands of John Cassavetes, it becomes something totally different. Uh, and the energy and the freedom and the movement um, and just is an emotional filmmaker like Aki Karismaki. And I think that's why they're my two guys because... Mm. They, they're very human and magical details. There's one sequence in the film where the character Cosmo dresses in like a white suit. He looks great. He goes into a little sleazy bar to celebrate having paid off some debts. And he sort of, he dances by himself and he gets a glass of whiskey. And on the outside of the whiskey is the condensation. And this, I know this sounds ridiculous, but there's a shot where it's on his fingers. And he just shakes it off. And you just know so much about this character from this little movement. And it's mm. like this unnecessary detail. Um, and what I really love about it, I, I don't know if I read this or if a friend just told me this, so I don't know if this is actually true, but Cassavetes is apparently considered as his most personal film because it's about his relationship with Hollywood. So oh, this little strip club that Cosmo is trying to run, he's putting his life and soul into it. He plans dance numbers, this quite kind of cerebral 
kind of uh, dialogues and, and it's kind of like vaudeville, like quite carny, but he thinks he's making beautiful theatre. But it's about all of those wild card factors around you, like the gangsters and the people that don't care about art. So it's his way of having a dig at the studio system that he had to work on the periphery of. So he's Cosmo trying to make beauty in this debased environment surrounded by sharks. Oh, wow. And when you watch it with that in mind, it just takes it to a whole new level. And, I feel like um, I should be stopping this podcast and, and, and watching it right I mean, away. I, I, I can't recommend it. And that's another one. I mean, I, I don't think it's happened often, but I finished watching it and then I just watched it again. Um, so when, when, how did you, how did you come across this? I mean, you say it wasn't your first Casavetti's film. Was it, was it part uh, of them once you've discovered him, you went and watched everything or? Um, yeah, I, I, it must've been a DVD from a friend or something. It was totally random and I definitely watched it um, alone and uh, in a, what, not in a cinema and not with other people. Um, and it just blew me away. His whole attitude to making films. I mean, he, he had, he was like a one man studio system, very mm. much like Carys Mackey is they total control over everything. Mm. And um, he spent, you know, he filmed so much and he was often on camera and then he'd spend like years and he was, it always strikes me as like sort of ultra confident, quite tortured. Like he would make multiple versions of the same film. There's like two cuts of, uh, Chinese bookie, both amazing. One's an extra 45 minutes long. You wouldn't even notice, you know, it's, they both work in their own way. Um, really? It's obsessive. And he built this amazing group of performers, like his uh, wife, Gina Rollins and Peter Falk. And they were like a family. And I really like this idea that again, like your own little world where he, and his book, Cassavet is on Cassavet. Well, the book about him is just, inspiring like he just put it pours out of him this love yeah. and enthusiasm um and also why i chose these two one of the most profound and uh important kind of film moments i had is like when you want to make films and you love charismatic and cassavet is over here you two like pillars and they're so different on the surface yeah, yeah i yeah. mean the themes of humanity are the same but they looked at it one's really still and sort of controlled and stylized and the other one is rough um finish your thought and uh, I was really troubled by the fact that I wanted to be like both of them. <laughs> and then several years ago, I think it was Sight and Sound did a thing with uh, directors picking their top 10 films and Aki Karismaki did one. And he chose nine films. And then for his top choice, he picked everything by Cassavetes. Really? And I was like, of course he loves him. You know, and it, it, I had this like, it sounds daft now, but I had this huge breakthrough that you can love this thing over here, but you don't necessarily have to make stuff like it. It's the essence and the fact that Charismaki uh, loved Cassavetes, it was just, it blew my mind that this guy on the surface looks very different, very controlled and composed, loves this kind of wild man who's throwing around the camera and, you know, not making it up as he goes along, but just letting life happen in the films. And to me, it was so important. It was like, oh, I can like all of them and just try and sail my own course somewhere. In the Indeed. Middle, I mean, it, spe- it speaks to that idea. You know, it sounds, it sounds daft to say it, but like, you know, you can vibe off something without trying to be it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like genres of music. You don't just like one type of thing, you no. know, and if you then were going to try and record music, you, it all fits in. And I think um, sometimes these little breakthroughs, they kind of just really help, you know. Absolutely. Um, I mean, going back to uh, referencing Kubrick, I mean, he he always said that he would much rather go around discovering stuff for himself than be recommended yeah. stuff all the time and have to queue it up. It was like the idea that part of 
part of our own growth is about our own discoveries. And obviously the way you describe these, obviously these were, you didn't plan to discover them, but when you did, they really spoke to you. And that's kind of, whether that be a painting, a book or a song or whatever, those are, yeah, those are the things that, because that's sort of, I mean, one of the benefits of being older as opposed to younger is understanding your own subjectivity is not a crime. And that, yeah, there are things people can tell you to the blue in the face is the best thing since sliced bread and you just will not connect with it. And then there are stuff that people are saying are dismissing and you're like, you're all crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's why this whole process has made me a bit nostalgic because it's so easy to find everything now and kind mm. of read about it and, and have context for something before you watch it. Yeah. But when you're going cold to something that seems beamed in from a different universe, you know, it's great. Let's remind people then, The World We Knew is out now. So how can people see it? It's going to be online and in uh, various shops on DVD. If you're very old-fashioned, get a DVD. Wow. Brilliant. Well, look, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on the Britflix podcast. Uh, and thank you, Stuart. It's been brilliant, man. Love it. Another season of the Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find the Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Palmetto Porch.